Jesus, therefore, offered himself a sacrifice, and that most particularly under the form or pattern supplied by the sin offering of the Levitical economy. In thus offering himself, he expiated guilt and purged away sin, so that we may draw near to God in full assurance of faith, and enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. In this connection, we must also keep in view what we have reflected on already, that the Levitical sacrifices were patterned after the heavenly exemplar, after what the epistle to the Hebrews calls the heavenly things. The bloody offerings of the Mosaic ritual were patterns of the grand offerings of Christ himself, by which the things in heavens were purified. Hebrews 9.23 This serves to confirm the thesis that what was constitutive in the Levitical sacrifices must also have been constitutive in the sacrifice of Christ. If the Levitical sacrifices were expiatory, how much more must the archetypical offering have been expiatory, and expiatory be it remembered, not on the plane of the temporary, provisional, preparatory, and partial, but on the plane of the eternal, the permanently real, the final, and the complete. The archetypal offering was therefore efficacious in a way that the ectypal could not be. It is this thought that is in evidence when we read, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hebrews 9.14 We must interpret the sacrifice of Christ in terms of the Levitical pattern, because they were themselves patterned after Christ's offering. But it is just because the Levitical were only patterned that we must also recognize the limitations by which they were encompassed in contrast with the perfect character of Christ's own offering. And it is because such limitations inhered in the Levitical offerings that we do not find and could not expect to find in the sacrifice of Christ a literal fulfillment of all the details of the Levitical sacrifices. It was the disproportion between the offerer and the offering, and between the liability of the offerer and the shedding of the blood of the offering under the Old Testament ritual that made necessary the elimination of all such disproportion in the case of Christ's sacrifice. The absence of this disproportion in the sacrifice of the Son of God is correlative with the absence in his case of all the details of Levitical prescription, which would have been incompatible with the unique and transcendent character of his self-oblation. That Christ's work was to offer himself a sacrifice for sin implies, however, a complementary truth too frequently overlooked. It is that, if Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, he was also a priest. And it was as a priest that he offered himself. He was not offered up by another, he offered himself. This is something that could not be exemplified in the ritual of the Old Testament. The priest did not offer himself, and neither did the offering offer itself. But in Christ we have this unique combination that serves to exhibit the uniqueness of his sacrifice, the transcendent character of his priestly office, and the perfection inherent in his priestly offering. It is in virtue of his priestly office and in pursuance of his priestly function that he makes atonement for sin. He indeed was the lamb slain, but he also was the priest that offered himself as the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. It is this amazing conjuncture that the union in him of priestly office and piacular offering evinces. It is all implied in the simple expression we so often quote but seldom appreciate, he offered himself without spot to God. And it verifies to the fullest extent what we found already, 
that in the climactic event which registered and brought to completion his sacrificial act, he was intensely active, and active, be it remembered, in offering to God the oblation that expiated the full toll of divine condemnation against a multitude whom no man can number out of every nation and kindred and people and tongue. Furthermore, and finally, it is the recognition of Christ's priestly function that ties up the sacrifice once offered with the abiding priestly function of the Redeemer. He is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He is a priest now, not to offer sacrifice, but as the permanent personal embodiment of all the efficacy and virtue that accrued from the sacrifice once offered. And it is as such he ever continues to make intercession for his people. His ever-continuing and always prevailing intercession is bound to the sacrifice once offered. But it is thus bound because it is in his capacity as the great high priest of our profession that he perfected the one and continues the other. 2. Propitiation The Greek word which stands for our English word propitiation does not appear frequently in the New Testament. This may seem surprising when we consider that it occurs with such frequency in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word so often translated by our English word atonement. We might think that a word which is so common in the Greek Old Testament in connection with the ritual of expiation would have been freely used by the writers of the New Testament, but this is not the case. This fact does not mean, however, that the atoning work of Christ is not to be interpreted in terms of propitiation. There are passages in which the language of propitiation is expressly applied to the work of Christ. Romans 3.25, Hebrews 2.17, 1 John 2.2, and 4.10. And this means without question that the work of Christ is to be construed as propitiation. But there is also another consideration. The frequency with which the concept appears in the Old Testament in connection with the sacrificial ritual, the fact that the New Testament applies to the work of Christ, the very term which denoted this concept in the Greek Old Testament, and the fact that the New Testament regards the Levitical ritual as providing the pattern for the sacrifice of Christ, lead to the conclusion that this is a category in terms of which the sacrifice of Christ is not only properly but necessarily interpreted. In other words, the idea of propitiation is so woven into the fabric of the Old Testament ritual that it would be impossible to regard that ritual as the pattern of the sacrifice of Christ if propitiation did not occupy a similar place in the one great sacrifice once offered. This is but another way of saying that sacrifice and propitiation stand in the closest relations with one another. The express application of the term propitiation to the work of Christ by the New Testament writers is the confirmation of this conclusion. But what does propitiation mean? In the Hebrew of the Old Testament, it is expressed by a word which means to cover. In connection with this covering, there are, in particular, three things to be noted. One, it is in reference to sin that the covering takes place. Two, the effect of this covering is cleansing and forgiveness. Three, it is before the Lord that both the covering and its effect take place. See especially Leviticus 4, verse 35, and chapter 10, verse 17, and chapter 16, verse 30. This means that sin creates a situation in relation to the Lord, a situation that makes the covering necessary. It is this Godward reference of both the sin and the covering that must be fully appreciated. It may be said that the sin, or perhaps the person who has sinned, is covered before the sight of the Lord. 
In the thought of the Old Testament, there is but one construction that we can place upon this provision of the sacrificial ritual. It is that sin evokes the holy displeasure or wrath of God. Vengeance is the reaction of the holiness of God to sin, and the covering is that which provides for the removal of divine displeasure which the sin evokes. It is obvious that we are brought to the threshold of that which is clearly denoted by the Greek rendering in both Old and New Testaments, namely that of propitiation. To propitiate means to placate, pacify, appease, conciliate, and it is this idea that is applied to the atonement accomplished by Christ. Propitiation presupposes the wrath and displeasure of God, and the purpose of propitiation is the removal of this displeasure. Very simply stated, the doctrine of propitiation means that Christ propitiated the wrath of God and rendered God propitious to his people. Perhaps no tenet respecting the atonement has been more violently criticized than this one. It has been assailed as involving a mythological conception of God as supposing internal conflict in the mind of God and between the persons of the Godhead. It has been charged that this doctrine represents the Son as winning over the incensed Father to clemency and love, a supposition wholly inconsistent with the fact that the love of God is the very fount from which the atonement springs. When the doctrine of propitiation is presented in this light, it can be very effectively criticized and can be exposed as a revolting caricature of the Christian gospel. But the doctrine of propitiation does not involve this caricature by which it has been misconceived and misrepresented. To say the least, this kind of criticism has failed to understand or appreciate some elementary and important distinctions. First of all, to love and to be propitious are not convertible terms. It is false to suppose that the doctrine of propitiation regards propitiation as that which causes or constrains the divine love. It is loose thinking of a deplorable sort to claim that propitiation of the divine wrath does prejudice to or is incompatible with the fullest recognition that the atonement is the provision of the divine love. Secondly, propitiation is not a turning of the wrath of God into love. The propitiation of the divine wrath effected in the expiatory work of Christ is the provision of God's eternal and unchangeable love so that through the propitiation of his own wrath that love may realize its purpose in a way that is consonant with and to the glory of the dictates of his holiness. It is one thing to say that the wrathful God is made loving. That would be entirely false. It is another thing to say the wrathful God is loving. That is profoundly true. But it is also true that the wrath by which he is wrathful is propitiated through the cross. This propitiation is the fruit of the divine love that provided it. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. 1 John 4.10 The propitiation is the ground upon which the divine love operates and the channel through which it flows in achieving its end. Thirdly, propitiation does not detract from the love and mercy of God. It rather enhances the marvel of his love. For it shows the cost that redemptive love entails. God is love. But the supreme object of that love is himself. And because he loves himself supremely, he cannot suffer what belongs to the integrity of his character and glory to be compromised or curtailed. This is the reason for the propitiation. God appeases his own holy wrath in the cross of Christ in order that the purpose of his love to lost men may be accomplished in accordance with and to the vindication of all the perfections that constitute his glory. 
whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to show his righteousness, that he might himself be just and the justifier of him that hath faith in Jesus. Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. The antipathy to the doctrine of propitiation as the propitiating of divine wrath rests, however, upon failure to appreciate what the atonement is. The atonement is that which meets the exigencies of holiness and justice. The wrath of God is the inevitable reaction of the divine holiness against sin. Sin is the contradiction of the perfection of God, and he cannot but recoil against that which is the contradiction of himself. Such recoil is his holy indignation. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Romans 1.18 The judgment of God upon sin is essentially his wrath. If we are to believe that the atonement is God's vicarious dealing with the judgment upon sin, it is absolutely necessary to hold that it is the vicarious endurance of that in which this judgment is epitomized. To deny propitiation is to undermine the nature of the atonement as the vicarious endurance of the penalty of sin. In a word, it is to deny substitutionary atonement. To glory in the cross is to glory in Christ as the propitiatory sacrifice once offered as the abiding propitiatory, and as the one who embodies in himself forever all the propitiatory efficacy of the propitiation once for all accomplished. And if any one sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. Number 3. Reconciliation Propitiation places in the focus of attention the wrath of God and the divine provision for the removal of that wrath. Reconciliation places in the focus of our attention our alienation from God and the divine method of restoring us to his favor. Obviously, these two aspects of the work of Christ are closely related, but the distinction is important. Only by observing the distinction can we discover the riches of the divine provision to meet the necessities of our manifold need. Reconciliation presupposes disrupted relations between God and men. It implies enmity and alienation. This alienation is twofold, our alienation from God and God's alienation from us. The cause of the alienation is, of course, our sin, but the alienation consists not only in our unholy enmity against God, but also in God's holy alienation from us. Our iniquities have separated between us and our God, and our sins have hid his face. See also Isaiah 59, verse 2. If we dissociate from the word enmity as applied to God, everything of the nature of malice and malignity, we may properly speak of this alienation on the part of God as his holy enmity towards us. It is this alienation that the reconciliation contemplates and removes. We might be ready to think that the reconciliation terminates not only God's holy enmity against us, but upon our unholy enmity towards him. Our English word would quite readily create this impression. This notion, furthermore, would appear to be supported by the usage of the New Testament itself. It is never said in so many words that God is reconciled to us, but rather that we are reconciled to God. Romans 5:10 and 11 and 2 Corinthians 5:20. And when the active voice is used, God is spoken of as reconciling us to himself. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 and 19. Ephesians 2.16 and Colossians 1.20 and 21. 
This would seem to clinch the argument that the reconciliation terminates upon our enmity against God and not upon his holy alienation from us. And so it has been maintained that when the reconciliation is conceived as action on the part of God, it is that which God has done to turn our enmity into love. And when it is conceived as result, it is the putting away of our enmity against God. Consequently, the reconciliation has been construed as consisting in that which God has done so that our enmity may be removed. In a word, the thought is focused on our enmity, and the doctrine of reconciliation is construed in these terms. When we examine the scripture more closely, we shall find the reverse to be the case. It is not our enmity against God that comes to the forefront in the reconciliation, but God's alienation from us. This alienation on the part of God arises indeed from our sin. It is our sin that evokes this reaction of his holiness. But it is God's alienation from us that is brought into the foreground whether the reconciliation is viewed as action or as result. It is instructive in this regard to examine a few instances of the occurrence of the word reconcile in the New Testament. These instances apply to the use of the word in human relations. The first is Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24. If therefore thou offerest thy gift at the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath something against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Here it is the meaning of the imperative, be reconciled to thy brother, that is our present interest. The following observations require to be mentioned. A. It is not assumed or suggested that the worshiper who is offering his gift at the altar entertains any malice or enmity in his heart against the brother to whom he is to be reconciled. That might be, or it might not be. But there is no intrusion of such a factor into the situation. The factor that is given as the reason for the interruption in the act of worship is simply that there is alienation. Something has entered into the relations of the two persons which the person called the brother considers to be a grievance against the person bringing the gift to the altar, something which the former considers to be a culpable breach of harmonious relations on the part of the latter. B. It is probably assumed in this case that the worshiper has done something to wrong the other brother, that he is guilty of some misdemeanor or breach of love. However, this is not absolutely necessary, and whether this be true or not, we have to take account of the fact that what the worshiper is commanded to do, he is required to do irrespective of the justice or injustice of the brother's thought and judgment. C. What the worshiper is commanded to do is to be reconciled to the brother. The command, be reconciled, does not mean put away your enmity or malice. He is not assumed to entertain any malice. Besides, if that is what he is commanded to do, he would not need to leave the altar to do it. He could not be in a better place than in the sanctuary if what he is required to do is to repent and put away his ill will. What the worshiper is commanded to do is something quite different. He is required to leave the altar, to repair to his offended brother, and then do something. What is it? It is to remove the ground of estrangement or alienation on the part of the brother. Put things right with the brother so that he will not have any reason for grievance. Do what is necessary so that there may be the resumption of harmonious relations. The reconciliation as act consists in the removal of the ground of disharmony. The reconciliation as result is the resumption of relations of harmony, understanding, and peace. 
It is all important to recognize, therefore, that what the worshiper takes into account in the act of reconciliation is the grievance entertained by the brother. It is the frame of the mind of the person to whom he is reconciled that he is to consider, and not any enmity which he himself entertains. And if we use the word enmity, it is the enmity on the part of the offended brother that is brought into the forefront of thought and consideration. In other words, it is the against entertained by the offended brother that the reconciliation has in view. The reconciliation affects the removal of this against. This passage then provides us with a most instructive lesson regarding the meaning of be reconciled. It shows that this expression, in this instance at least, focuses thought and consideration not upon the enmity of the person who is said to be reconciled, but upon the alienation in the mind of the person with whom the reconciliation is made. And if the meaning which obtains in this passage is that which holds in connection with our reconciliation to God through the death of Christ, then what is thrust into the foreground when we are said to be reconciled to God is the alienation of God from us, the holy enmity on the part of God by which we are alienated from him. The reconciliation as action would be the removal of the ground of God's alienation from us. The reconciliation as result would be the harmonious and peaceful relation established because the ground of God's alienation from us had been removed. At this stage we could not affirm that this is the precise force of the word reconciliation in reference to our reconciliation with God. We shall have to derive our doctrine of reconciliation from the passages which deal specifically with that subject. But Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, does show us that in the usage of the New Testament, the word reconcile is used in a sense very different from that which might readily be suggested by our English word. Hence, when the New Testament speaks of our being reconciled to God by the death of his Son, or of God's reconciling us to himself, we are not to assume that the concept is to be construed in terms of the removal of our enmity against God. To say the least, Matthew 5:23 and 24 suggests a very different direction of thought. Another instance of the use of the word reconcile, which evinces the same line of thought, is 1 Corinthians 7:11. Referring to the woman separated from her husband, Paul says, Let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband. In this case, to whatever extent subjective enmity on the part of the woman may have entered in to cause the separation that is envisaged, it is obvious that the command to be reconciled to her husband cannot consist in putting away her subjective enmity or hostility. That would not bring the exhortation into effect. The reconciliation contemplates, rather, the termination of the separation and re-entrance upon proper and harmonious matrimonial relations. The reconciliation regarded as action is to cause to cease the separation and, as effect, the resumption of peaceful marital relations. Again, in Romans 11.15, we have an instance of the substantive reconciliation. For if the casting away of them is the reconciling of the world, what shall the receiving of them be but life from the dead? It is apparent that the reconciling is contrasted with the casting away, and the casting away is contrasted with the receiving. The receiving is nothing else than the reception of Israel again into divine favor and the blessing of the gospel. The casting away is the rejection of Israel from divine favor and gospel grace. The reconciling of the Gentiles, which is upon the occasion of the rejection of Israel, is in like manner the receiving of the Gentiles into divine favor. 
The reconciliation of the Gentiles, therefore, cannot be construed in terms of the putting away of enmity on the part of the Gentiles, but in terms of the change in God's economy of grace when the alienation of the Gentiles came to an end and they were made fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. See Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22. To whatever extent the change from enmity to faith and love in the hearts of the Gentiles may be taken into account as the effect of the change in God's economy of grace and of judgment, grace to the Gentiles and judgment upon Israel, we must regard the reconciliation of the world as consisting in the change of relation which God sustained to the Gentile world, the change from alienation to gospel favor and blessing. It is the relationship of God to the Gentiles that is brought into the forefront in this use of the word reconciliation. When we proceed to deal with the passages which directly concern the work of reconciliation wrought by Christ, it is necessary for us to bear in mind that reconciliation in these other instances does not refer to the putting away of the subjective enmity in the heart of the person said to be reconciled, but to the alienation on the part of the person to whom we are said to be reconciled. We shall see how it is this notion that applies to the reconciliation accomplished by Christ. The reconciliation deals with the alienation of God from us on account of our sin. By taking away sin, reconciliation removes the ground of this alienation, and peace with God is the effect. The two passages which we shall consider are Romans 5 verses 8 through 11 and 2 Corinthians 5 verses 18 through 21. Romans 5 verses 8 through 11. At the very outset, the way in which the subject of reconciliation is introduced here points us to the direction in which we are to discover the meaning of reconciliation. But God commendeth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 8. The death of Christ as that which wrought reconciliation is set forth as the supreme manifestation of the love of God toward men. What is given the prominence is the love of God, as it expresses itself in an action so well defined as the death of Christ. Our attention is therefore drawn not to the subjective realm of man's attitude to God, but to the divine attitude as it is demonstrated in an historical event. To interpret the reconciliation in terms of what occurs in our subjective disposition would interfere with this orientation, but there are also more directly confirmatory reasons for thinking thus. A. Paul tells us expressly that we are reconciled to God through the death of his Son. The tense indicates that it is an accomplished fact, wrought once for all when Christ died. We can see how impossible it is to interpret the reconciliation as God's removal of our enmity or as the laying aside of enmity on our part. It is true that God did something once for all to ensure that our enmity would be removed and that we would be induced to lay aside our enmity. But then that which God did once for all would not consist in the removal of our enmity or in the putting away of our enmity. Furthermore, the a fortiori argument which Paul uses in this passage would supply us with an incongruous construction if we were to regard the reconciliation as the removal on God's part or the laying aside on our part of our enmity. The argument would have to run in some such way as follows. For if when we were enemies we laid aside our enmity against God through the death of his Son, how much more, having laid aside our enmity, shall we be saved by his life? See verse 10. The incoherence is apparent and can only be remedied by placing upon the word reconcile a very different meaning.
B. The words, reconciled to God through the death of his son, verse 10, are parallel to the words, justified now in his blood, verse 9. Such parallelism is presupposed in the sequence of the argument. But justification is always forensic and does not refer to any subjective change in man's disposition. Since this is so, the expression that is parallel to it, namely reconciled to God, must be given a similarly juridical force and can only mean that which came to pass in the objective sphere of the divine action and judgment. C. The reconciliation is something received. We have received the reconciliation. Verse 11. To say the least, it is most unreasonable to try to adjust or accommodate this notion to the idea of the removal or the laying aside of our enmity. The concept here is one in which something is represented as made over to us as a free gift. It is, of course, true that it is by the work of God's grace in us that we are enabled to turn from enmity against God to faith, repentance, and love. But in the language of Scripture, this latter work of grace is not represented in such terms as are used here. We can detect the inappropriateness of such a rendering if we try to paraphrase with such a conception in mind. We have now received the removal of our enmity, or we have now received the laying aside of our enmity. On the other hand, if we regard the reconciliation as the free grace of God in the removal of alienation from God and acceptance into his favor, then it all becomes coherent and meaningful. What we have received is reinstatement in the favor of God. How consistent with the terms of the passage and with the rejoicing of the apostle to say, We joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom now we no longer suffer alienation from God, but have been received into favor and peace with him. D. Paul says that it was while we were yet enemies that we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Verse 10. It is altogether feasible to regard the word enemies here as reflecting not upon our enmity against God, but as referring to the alienation from God to which we had been subjected. The same word is used in this passive sense in Romans 11.28. If this sense is adopted, the antithesis instituted between enmity and reconciliation is exactly that between alienation and reception into divine favor. This would corroborate the foregoing argument as to the meaning of reconciliation. But even if the word enemies be understood in the active sense of our hostility to God, the same sense of reconciliation would have to be maintained. How could any other interpretation comport with the argument of the apostle? It could scarcely be said, if, being active enemies of God, our enmity was removed by the death of his son, how much more, having had our enmity removed, shall we be saved by his life? 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18-21 through 21. It will serve to confirm what we have found in Romans 5, 8-11 to set forth the salient features of the teaching of this passage. A. The reconciliation is represented as a work of God. It begins with God and it is accomplished by Him. All things are of God who reconciled us to Himself. Verse 18 God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Verse 19 this emphasis upon divine monergism advises us that reconciliation is a work that does not, as such, draw within its scope human action. As accomplishment, it does not enlist, nor is it dependent upon the activity of men. B. Reconciliation is a finished work. The tenses in verses 18, 19, and 21 put this beyond doubt. It is not a work being continuously wrought by God. 
it is something accomplished in the past. God is not only the sole agent, but also the agent of action already perfected. C. That in which the reconciliation consisted is expounded for us in this passage. Him who knew no sin, he made to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Verse 21. This clearly points us to the vicarious sin-bearing of Christ as that which brought the reconciliation into being. This forensic character of the reconciliation is also borne out in verse 19, where, not reckoning to them their trespasses, is related to the reconciling of the world as the explanation of that in which the reconciliation consists or as the consequence in which it issues. In either case, reconciliation has its affinities with the non-imputation of trespasses rather than with any subjective operation. D. This accomplished work of reconciliation is the message committed to the messengers of the gospel. Verse 19. It constitutes the content of the message. But the message is that which is declared to be a fact. Conversion, it ought to be remembered, is not the gospel. It is the demand of the gospel message and the proper response to it. Any transformation which occurs in us is the effect in us of that which is proclaimed to have been accomplished by God. The change in our hearts and minds presupposes the reconciliation. E. The exhortation, Be ye reconciled to God, verse 20, should be interpreted in terms of what we have found to be the ruling conception in reconciliation. It means, Be no longer in a state of alienation from God, but enter rather into the relation of favor and peace established by the reconciliatory work of Christ. Take advantage of the grace of God and enter into the status of peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The reconciliation of which the scripture speaks, as accomplished by the death of Christ, contemplates, therefore, the relation of God to us. It presupposes a relation of alienation, and it affects a relation of favor and peace. This new relation is constituted by the removal of the ground for the alienation. The ground is sin and guilt. The removal is wrought in the vicarious work of Christ, when he was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ took upon himself the sin and guilt, the condemnation, and the curse of those on whose behalf he died. This is the epitome of divine grace and love. It is God's own provision, and it is his accomplishment. God himself, in his own Son, has removed the ground of offense, and we receive the reconciliation. It is the message of this divine performance, perfected and complete, that is addressed to us in the gospel, and the demand of faith is crystallized in the plea that is uttered on behalf of Christ and as of God, be ye reconciled to God. Believe that the message is one of fact and enter into the joy and blessing of what God has wrought. Receive the reconciliation. Number four, redemption. The idea of redemption must not be reduced to the general notion of deliverance. The language of redemption is the language of purchase and more specifically of ransom. And ransom is the securing of a release by the payment of a price. The evidence that establishes this concept of redemption is very copious and no doubt need remain that the redemption secured by Christ is to be interpreted in such terms. The word of our Lord himself, Matthew 20:28 20, and Mark 10:45 should place beyond all doubt three facts. 1. that the work he came into the world to accomplish is a work of ransom. 2. that the giving of his life was the ransom price and three, that this ransom was substitutionary in its nature. 
Ransom presupposes some kind of bondage or captivity, and redemption, therefore, implies that from which the ransom secures us. Just as sacrifice is directed to the need created by our guilt, propitiation to the need that arises from the wrath of God, and reconciliation to the need arising from our alienation from God, so redemption is directed to the bondage to which our sin has consigned us. This bondage is, of course, multiform. Consequently, redemption as purchase, or ransom, receives a wide variety of reference and application. Redemption applies to every aspect in which we are bound, and it releases us unto a liberty that is nothing less than the liberty of the glory of the children of God. We must not, of course, press the language of purchase or ransom unduly. As T.J. Crawford reminds us, we may not attempt to trace in the work of Christ an exact conformity to everything that is done in human acts of redemption. Our constructions would thus become artificial and fanciful, but that our salvation is accomplished by a process of commutation analogous to the payment of a ransom, see page 63, lies on the face of the New Testament. From what aspects then does the scripture view the redemption wrought by Christ? The most apparent of these may be comprehended under the two following divisions. Number one, law. When the scripture relates redemption to the law of God, the terms it uses are to be carefully marked. It does not say that we are redeemed from the law. That would not be an accurate description, and the scripture refrains from such an expression. We are not redeemed from the obligation to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind and our neighbors as ourselves. The law is comprehended in these two commandments, Matthew 22:40, and love is the fulfilling of the law, Romans 13:10. To suppose that we are delivered from the law in the sense of such obligation would bring contradiction into the design of Christ's work. It would contradict the very nature of God to think that any person can ever be relieved of the necessity to love God with the whole heart and to obey his commandments. When scripture relates redemption to the law of God, it uses terms that are more specific. A. The curse of the law. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 The curse of the law is its penal sanction. This is essentially the wrath or curse of God, the displeasure which rests upon every infraction of the law's demand. Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. Galatians 3.10 Without deliverance from this curse there could be no salvation. It is from this curse that Christ has purchased his people, and the price of the purchase was that he himself became a curse. He became so identified with the curse resting upon his people that the whole of it in all its unrelieved intensity became his. That curse he bore and that curse he exhausted. That was the price paid for this redemption and the liberty secured for the beneficiaries is that there is no more curse. B. The Ceremonial Law When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under law, in order that he might redeem them that are under the law that we might receive the adoption of sons. Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. What is in view here is redemption from the tutelary bondage of the Mosaic economy. The people of God under the Old Testament were children of God by the divine adoption of grace. But they were as children under age, under tutors, and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Galatians 4, 2. Of this tutelary pedagogical discipline, the Mosaic economy was the minister. See Galatians 3, verses 23 and 24. Paul is contrasting this period of tutelage under the Mosaic law 
with the full liberty bestowed upon all believers, whether Jews or Gentiles, under the gospel. This full liberty and privilege he calls the adoption of sons, Galatians 4.5. Christ came in order that this adoption might be secured. The consideration particularly relevant to the price paid for this redemption is the fact that Christ was made under the law. He was born under the Mosaic law, he was subjected to its conditions, and he fulfilled its terms. In him, the Mosaic law realized its purpose, and its meaning received in him its permanent validity and embodiment. Consequently, he redeemed from the relative and provisional bondage of which the Mosaic economy was the instrument. This redemption has significance not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles. In the gospel economy, not even Gentiles are required to undergo the tutelary discipline to which Israel was subjected. But now that faith is come, we are no longer under a tutor, for we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3, verses 25 and 26. This great grace, that all without distinction or discrimination are sons of God by faith of Christ Jesus, is the fruit of a redemption secured by the fact that Christ was made under the Mosaic law and fulfilled its terms and purpose. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.